Hi, and welcome to The Greater Good, a CETA podcast where we have conversations on policy priorities that matter for our future. And we do that with Australian leaders across government, business, and academia, as CETA continues to pursue solutions that deliver better economic and social outcomes for the greater good. I'm Jared Ball, Chief Economist at CETA, and thanks for tuning in for this episode of The Greater Good. Before we get started with today's episode, as usual, I'm going to take a few seconds to let you rate and subscribe to our podcast. Subscribing means you get the episodes in your phone as soon as they go live, and rating our show helps others find it too. So thanks for doing that. Now for today's episode. I'm joined today by Andrew Ware, who's a policymaker with degrees in politics, law, economics, and public policy. He's a graduate of the Senior Executive Fellows Program at the Harvard Kennedy School and a director of RDOC, a children's education charity. Andrew has recently written a super interesting book uh, called Solved, How Other Countries Have Cracked the World's Biggest Problems and We Can Too. Uh, It's a really broad journey across a number of policy issues and looking at the case studies from uh, other jurisdictions on how they are managing some of the biggest challenges Uh, facing us like climate change. So it was really good to sit down with Andrew and have a bit of a chat about uh, this book. Andrew, thanks so much for uh, coming on. You've written this fantastic book, um, Solved, How Other Countries Have Cracked the World's Biggest Problems and Weekend Too. And, uh, you know, I think anyone who works in policy or the economic research space and is interested in in solving some of the big challenges that we face um it's a fantastic book to to go and take a look at um as with anyone who who takes on such a big um task as as writing a book like this i'm really interested in just your background you know where you've come from and and what it was that that inspired you um to to take on such an ambitious project yeah, thanks, Jared, and thanks for having me. Look, I've worked in policy roles um, for the last twenty years or so, whether you know across three tiers of government, um, mostly within uh, within the bureaucracy uh, in a range of policy areas. But you know, you, you one of the things that drives you as a public servant is this notion that you want to be doing good, want to be actually having an impact. The work you do is actually achieving better outcomes. And I really wanted to get a sense of what good was. What is what is best practice public policy? Which jurisdictions around the world are achieving the best outcomes and what can we learn from them? And with that, it was so partly that I wrote the book for myself was a bit of clarity to provide myself with a sense of direction and purpose as, as my own uh, policy work progressed. Um, but also it was also driven by a sense that when I, it was really catalyzed one day when I was in a bookshop st- staring in the politics section. And I think 90% of all the books or more were all negative books. So it was all about the problem, the world's problems, the world faces, you know, it was climate change or racism or inequality or, and, and it was f- quite depressing actually, particularly when from the policy work I'd been doing, I knew that there are actually good stories around about, success stories about different jurisdictions around the world achieving uh, solutions to many of those problems. And so 
I thought, wouldn't it be great to actually construct a book that actually, rather than describe problems, actually describe some of the solutions and some of the examples of great, great stories from around the world of, of jurisdiction solving the problems. And so those two, I guess, drivers came together in a, a real... I guess a compulsion to proceed with this book, and um, and it was really good fun writing it. I tell you, interviewing people from all over the world involved in policy, uh, and finding out from their perspective how things worked, what worked well, what didn't work, what they would recommend to others. Uh, it was a really, really interesting journey. Yeah, it um, so- sounds like it, and I think it's interesting because you've actually had the discipline to you know go and look at all these areas and write them down, whereas a lot of us you know, we do um, grapple with a particular policy area and we'll we'll kind of have a look at what's happening around the world, but we probably don't do it in that kind of, you know, really systematic way that you've um, done in the book across a series of issues and, and talking to people on the ground, which sort of leads me to this issue. And we, we do things like we've got a competitiveness index that we support here at CEDAR and it, it leads to some really interesting cross-jurisdictional comparisons around policy settings and, and economies. Um, there's obviously some tips and traps here for people when they look to do international comparisons, um, given some of the different different contexts in different countries. Um, interested in your insights on that, and you obviously would have given this a lot of thought mm. as you put the, put the book together. And I guess a little bit of, you know, what are the tips for people who are looking at doing international comparisons on, on policy issues you know what what are the things that they need to look for in terms of where there is a really good application or comparison versus um where there may not be or where you need to be you know a little bit cautious yeah i thanks for that question and i think it's really important to think through this because you do get a lot of pushback from when you're using international case studies or they're different to us they're fundamentally got a different cultural background or a different different set of institutions and and it's it's true every country has a different history different culture different politics and no no example from another country can be translated or transposed directly onto another um but that said i I have a different view, I guess, of the value of cross-country comparisons. I think firstly, regardless of the differences, cross-country comparisons hold us accountable. They, uh, they really do force us to ask the question, why can't we do better? Why, why are other countries getting better results than we are? What, you know, why, why, why shouldn't we do better than we are? And I th- they also then go on to provide us with inspiration um, by giving us examples of countries that are doing an amazing job tackling the issues that we're, gra- we're still grappling with, they allow us to have an expanded conversation, a bigger conversation than we might otherwise have been able to have about the sense of what might be possible. And I think they also provide a bit of a factual basis for some of our debates and discussions that we might have in Australia. So, for example, uh, to... to to ensure that we're having a, actually a policy debate and not an ideological one. And so, for example, with one of the debates that we've had in Australia over many years is the size of the tax take, for example, and it tends the, the debate along those lines tends to uh, mirror the ideological position to the person arguing it. But actually, when you look across the, the entire OECD, 
a couple of percentage points difference in the tax take probably doesn't make that much difference in the, in the end. It's not really related to the level of growth. And that sort of data analysis can actually uh, mean that we can have a, a, a richer conversation. But that said, I think international comparisons are probably most useful for those really intractable issues, the sort of issues that we've been stuck on for a long time in Australia, maybe climate change or energy policy, for example. And they allow us to sort of imagine a different way through the issues that we can get stuck on. Uh, but you, but we can never immediately, I mean, so in the book, I, I focus on Denmark and, and tell the story of bipartisan approaches to energy policy and climate change and, and the success that that's yielded in terms of transition to 100% renewable electricity by 2030 and uh, a halving of per capita carbon emissions. But we're never going to be able to pick up and just drop down that policy approach in Australia. And it's not about that. Uh, it's really about learning from that experience, say, in Denmark in that instance and transposing it to Australia. And it's that transposition that's the interesting part because the cross-country comparison only gets the conversation started. Then we've got to pick it up and take it from there. And obviously, countries most similar to us will probably um, yield the easiest transpositions. It's going to be harder for us to... Uh, to transpose, for example, some of the lessons from East Asian countries to a country like Australia. But then the question of which countries are most similar to us, I would argue, is also contested. Are we more similar to the US uh, than, to, than to some of the Scandinavian countries? I think that's debatable. Uh, so I think a lot of this cross-country comparison work really is about uh, enlarging the conversation, the sense of what's possible, the sense of where we might take our policy discussion and debate. I think that's a really interesting point around, you know, um, holding us accountable and, and, you know, being inspired in terms of what we could achieve. And it's interesting when you look at different policy areas and the countries that do stand out, they generally have made a very deliberate kind of decision to be leaders um, in that area and to, and to kind of aspire to that. So I think, I think you're absolutely right in terms of just using that as a, as a point of accountability um, mm. in some of the discussions that, that we have. Um, I'm keen to dip into some of the areas and, and, you know, there's, we could, we could go to so many areas, uh, whether it's mm -hmm. climate change that you've mentioned, um, violence, gender inequality, immigration, so many areas covered off in the, in the book. Um, but, but particularly interested in, in some of the kind of debates and, and topics that have become a little bit more um, resonant during COVID-19. Um, one of those, of course, being um, education and, and remote learning is kind of, I guess, put back on people's radar, just some of the inequities and inadequacies in our education system. Um, and when I think about, you know, other countries in this area. And I think about that point that I just made around, you know, people being really deliberate and aspiring to something big. Um, Singapore does come to mind. And I know that you've, you've cited them a fair bit in the education chapter that you have. Um, what are your thoughts from, from those other countries in terms of how we need to think about accelerating improvements in our education system? And I do think that this will probably become a focus um, post COVID. I'm not sure that it's, I think we've all been kind of complaining a little bit about remote learning and things like that at the current point, but I suspect that we'll come back to this debate in a big way um, next year, potentially. 
Yeah, I suspect you're right. I, uh, I don't know if you've got children, Jared, but at the moment it feels like we're just hanging on, in, hanging on, and surviving at the moment at home with with <laughs> remote learning. But um, but we'll come out the other side, and when we do, I think you're right. We'll pick up education, and I think that point about being deliberate is right at the right at the uh, the heart of it. I take Singapore for example. Fifty years ago, they were just emerging from the sort of World War II and um, Japanese occupation. Barely anyone finished uh, finished high school, um, and it was a really just a, a tropical developing country. And that and they made the deliberate decision that with no natural resources, um, you know, an, an island where where they really didn't have a lot going for it in a lot of ways, that its people was going to be the asset, the, the the key asset that Singapore built an economy off. And so investing in people, education being the pathway to economic development was an explicit, uh, explicit agenda. And I think that sense of saying, we're not going to be complacent. We want to have achieved the best educational outcomes in the world. It's got to come first. And Australia ranks mid-pack when it comes to OECD, OECD educational outcomes. We, we, we really whether it be maths or English, we, we really maybe slightly above OECD average, but pretty much mid-pack. And I think we should be aspiring to do better than that. We should be aspiring to be really moving up those rankings. And if not, why not? And, and, that, and that starts with uh, that decision. And, I th- and it's interesting. I think what we've learned with Singapore, for example, is that government has got to be play a really important driving role in that. Uh, Singapore is certainly different. Almost 100% of their schools are government-run schools. Um, what they've shown is that government-run schools can achieve the best results in the world. Um, but they've done that by really focusing on their teachers in particular. They want their teachers to be the best in the world by supporting teacher learning and development, for example, uh, so that you've got really good quality teachers in the classroom. Every teacher in Singapore gets 100 hours of funded learning and development every single year. They do things like uh, do management training courses or travel the world to learn from other jurisdictions. Uh, uh, they have mentoring, that coaching, uh, professional collaboration. There's a whole bunch of focus on that teacher learning and development. And, and good teachers are really rewarded with different pathways, whether that be as a curriculum leader, a, uh, a master teacher coaching other teachers or a move into school leadership. It's really, really important. But then taking some lessons from other countries as well, I think, and Singapore is now starting to really focus on on early childhood education as being one of the underpinning factors of great education um, by what we've seen, is, particularly in some of the Nordic countries, is that by investing in three-year-old, four-year-old early childhood education, we can really um, make a massive difference, not just in education, but in life outcomes in a whole host of areas uh, Australia's uh, made some moves in that direction, obviously, with funded four-year-old kinder. But we're st- we've still got a long way to go there when it comes to early childhood education, I think. Yeah. Um, it, as someone who's married to a teacher, I can tell you that, um, you know, the kind of Singaporean approach to teacher quality uh, certainly would, would get a tick in, in my household um, in, the, in the kind of kitchen table debates about, uh, about education policy. Which um, usually I don't I don't fare too well in I have to say as an as an economist, um, but um, yeah it's it's pretty interesting and, and obviously early childhood has has been an area 
um, that's been a bit of a discussion point during during COVID, given the changes around um, childcare uh, that have taken place as well. Mm. Um, another issue that that's kind of come up during COVID has been our kind of domestic capacity uh, in terms of manufacturing, and interestingly, that that debate I think has has emerged a lot from a discussion around production. What do we produce in Australia? Whereas when I think about the future of manufacturing, I think much more broadly about the value add and the fact that manufacturing isn't just about production, it's about design, it's about sales and service and all of those sorts of um, things. There's obviously a lot that we can learn from other countries um, in this area. What, what did you find in terms of um, the countries that have really uh, either maintained or, or lifted their manufacturing capacity over time, particularly in kind of the current uh, environment of, you know, high-tech um, emerging technologies and so forth. Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of developed countries, including Australia, have seen a steady decline in the share of their economies uh, generated by manufacturing. Australia is no exception. And that's usually put down to competition with low-cost countries uh, such as China and others throughout throughout Asia. Um, but I looked at Germany, for example, and Germany is really over a number of decades has sustained manufacturing at roughly 23% of its GDP um, and really without any decline in, in, share, in, in manufacturing share, which means it's grown in, in absolute terms. And even through increasing trade with China is actually been uh, is actually supported Germany's manufacturing production. Uh, with Germany now exports more to China than it imports from China, um, and and it's incredible success. Um, and and look, a, we could talk a while about this, but I think the fundamentals of of the German approach involve being the best in the world at what they do, and that might be not trying to out-compete out China on mass-produced plastic widgets, but but identifying very specific high-tech niches in which the German German companies can actually produce the best product on the world at any given time. Um, and increasingly too, I, I, sorry, interestingly too, I think the focus on not just large multinational manufacturers, but also small and medium-sized manufacturers, often there's a family-owned small and medium-sized manufacturers in Germany uh, have got a very defined niche and are able to actually focus on export and technology and innovation uh, you know, and, and out-compete the world's best. Uh, but that's made possible, I think, by, by a real focus on vocational training, which runs through Germany. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people come out of school every year and move into a vocational career, doing apprenticeships in a broad range of areas in, in many, many manufacturing careers, not just in the trades. And, and vocational careers or technical careers are seen as quite prestigious, is almost analogous to a, a university or an academic career in Germany. And that is a really significant, significant component of uh, Germany's success because they've got a whole bunch of highly trained, uh, they've got a massive technical, technically trained workforce that's able to sustain a manufacturing industry. And then I think another dimension that's worth worthwhile focusing on is 
is R&D. Uh, Germany invests very significantly in R&D and, and it's uh, certainly far more than Australia. And it's supported by networks of organizations like the Fraunhofer Institutes, which are explicitly set up to work with businesses on uh, technological innovation to help invest, to help on new, with new projects to ensure those companies can keep innovating. And that has really uh, been at the heart of that model. Um, not too dissimilar to the CSIRO, but it's but but rather than focus on uh, institutions that develop their own uh, internal products and push them out, the uh, the Fraunhofer Institutes really have to earn their keep by actually following the leads of businesses and working with them and supporting them. Um, so it's it's a very 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 interesting model in Germany. I think there's a lot for Australia to learn. Yeah, and I think the you know the focus on R and D. There's been some recent commentary uh, on this. It's obvious, obviously an area where Australia needs to needs to lift its game, and also the how fragmented some of our funding is in this area. Um, you know, we've got lots of small programs uh, that aren't necessarily getting that getting that scale um, that we that we'd like to see. Um, you and I are both in in uh, Melbourne, and of course uh, we're in we're in lockdown, which which makes the next um, topic of particular interest, and that's obviously around the future of cities. Um, as I get around and talk to CEDA members, this is one of the things that people are really interested in: is what is the city going to look like um, post COVID? And seem to be different different kind of points of view around that. Um, some people think that that they won't be the same uh, again, and others, perhaps perhaps economists like me, feel like the pricing mechanisms will sort that out, and ultimately, you know, lower rents and so forth will actually bring people back into um, CBDs, and and cities will be will be vibrant again. Um, what's your What's your view on the on the future of cities from your research, and particularly, I think, in your book you talk about um you know urban revival are we going to need an urban revival um post covid and what what would the international kind of historical experience suggest about how we might might go about that yeah well cities have got certainly got some challenges ahead in the in the near term in particular but cities are remarkably resilient there's hundreds of years of history uh, that have driven people to migrate to cities that have driven the growth of cities. The agglomeration in cities has underpinned uh, innovation and the growth and productivity growth. And I'm, I'm optimistic uh, that cities will bounce back from this crisis, just the same, just the same as they've bounced back from crises beforehand. But I suspect this, I suspect cities like Melbourne will be different. Uh, we don't know yet exactly how they'll be different. We don't know yet just exactly which which of the changes we're currently seeing will be temporary and will bounce back from and which changes might leave a structural legacy. And I'm a little bit sceptical about anyone claiming to be able to predict the future about about cities. Um, you know, more than 20 years ago, we had... Uh, we had people talking about the um, the rise of remote working and that was going to drive everyone to work from home and and... Tele, telework, uh, telecommute, etc. And in fact, we saw the opposite trend. More technology meant people were more likely to to, to gather together in dense inner city cores, you know, so they could share and collaborate with each other. Um, 
we don't know and fr- frankly but i think we do we can we can sort of speculate about some of the trends that we're going to have to grapple with i think a lot of australian australia has been one of the fastest growing countries in the world in terms of population we've relied a lot on it our economic growth has relied a lot on population growth and i think with immigration essentially uh, shut down for the foreseeable future those some of those demographic trends are going to play out so we're going to have to think about ways of driving economic growth that doesn't rely so much on immigration which i think is actually a healthy exercise for us to go through we've actually should have been doing this for a long time thinking through how do we improve productivity how do we drive innovation how do we uh, become leaders in knowledge-intensive industries in a, in a globally competitive way. I think those challenges remain ahead of us and COVID, I think, will bring some of those into stark relief. Cities will have a really important role to play in all of those. I think once the restrictions lift, um, city will will bounce back. Uh, there, there might be a lingering tale of... Uh, I suspect we're dealing with a rather significant recession that will uh, that will have a, a quite a significant impact. But but in time, I'm I'm confident that cities will will return as the engines of growth in a country like Australia. Well, you're um, you're getting on the optimism bandwagon, Andrew. I like this because um, I always try and kind of finish our um, our podcast on a positive note. But but this next question that I've got for you could could go either way. Um, <laughs> Your book is obviously um, about a about a dose of optimism, and it probably couldn't couldn't have come at a better time amid some of the doom and gloom that we're experiencing at the moment. Um, just interested in your reflections um, at the moment, and and looking back to the the book and its release. What's your what's your kind of outlook on our capacity to solve problems in light of COVID? Are you feeling more or less optimistic? Um, and you know. Why? I do take actually a lot of heart from the COVID response. I think when you look at Australia's response to COVID-19 in a global context, when you compare it to the approach of other other Anglo jurisdictions in particular, it's been super impressive. We've had, we've had political leadership that's been prepared to put aside partisan politics to work in a collaborative way. We've set up new models of, uh, of governance, a new approach to the Federation. We've put scientific advice and expert advice at the heart of government. I think though that's been actually a really, really, really impressive approach, seeing state and, state and federal governments working together. I think the challenge for us ahead will be whether we can take the lessons of that approach to governing uh, and apply it to other difficult, challenging policy problems. And energy and climate change is really the obvious one there where we do need to rely more on scientific advice and expert advice, and we do need more trust and we do need a greater approach to collaboration. But I think why I'm optimistic is that we've seen that we can do, we can do that. We can see that the public like it. We've seen increase in trust in government as a result of COVID-19. We've seen opinion polls reflect the fact that lead, uh, that leaders are awarded by their voters when they do work in such a way. And I'm hopeful that some of the experience and learning, both at the political and the policy level, will mean that we can carry some of that forward to, to other policy issues. Yeah, well, I, I certainly um, 
you know, am feeling optimistic in that sense as well. And I think we've, we also probably need to be realistic, you know, some of the bumps that we're seeing at the moment in terms of, um, you know, the response in some areas, um, you know, we are going to have differences between governments at, at different times, but the, the main thing is that we're able to work through those um, and get, get to solutions. So I think that's, that's a really great note to end on Andrew. It's been, been a real pleasure to talk to you and um, I really commend you uh, for the book solved how other countries have cracked the world's biggest problems and we can too. Um, if you haven't, if you're listening to this and you haven't got a copy already, um, go and go and grab one. Uh, definitely worth a look. Thanks, Andrew. Really appreciate it, Jared. Good on you. Thanks everyone for listening in to another episode of The Greater Good. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your preferred platform, as I said before. Uh, and for more COVID-19 coverage, such as our blogs and live streams, jump on the CEDA website, cedar.com.au. Uh, and as we continue to focus on economic recovery, you'll find a lot of our COVID-19 coverage on the Coming Back Better tab of the website. And finally, keep up to date with everything CEDA is doing in real time by following CEDA on social media. You'll even find me there too, uh, and I am always happy to take people's questions and feedback. Please tune in next time, and until then, stay safe.